If you would turn to Revelation 16, we're going to um, open uh, a part of Scripture that is very difficult for uh, us to, to listen to, especially uh, American Christians who have been taught that God dispenses cotton candy every Sunday and not necessarily the cod liver oil. So this is kind of the cod liver oil uh, 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 message. It's, it's very hard uh, for us to listen to, but it's utterly essential for us to listen to the truth of God's Word. I've asked Rob to put a couple charts up just to give you an overview. The one you saw on the screen now, I believe, is chart number four, and it's kind of the first half of the tribulation period. You'll notice that we've been in Revelation. The first three chapters deal with the past and the seven churches. Then in chapters four and five, we see the worship of heaven. And chapter six through 18 begins the great tribulation period where God is going to repossess his planet to prepare it for the coming of the Messianic kingdom. Uh, and Jesus will reign from Jerusalem in a thousand years. We're going to get to that in Revelation chapter 20. So the three series of judgments we've been looking at by which God is preparing the planet for the return of Christ are the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments. We've been through those. Those take place actually during most of the time during the first half. Now, as you recall, these charts are from Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum's book in the Footsteps of the Messiah. Arnold Fruchtenbaum has a belief that the seals and the trumpets occur during the first half of the tribulation. Understand that there's very, very competent scholars who would argue that the seals and the trumpets really take place during the bulk of the tribulation period, not necessarily the first half. The next uh, chart that Rob has on screen really are the events that we've been in for the last several months. We're kind of the mid-period of the tribulation between the the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments from about chapter 11 to chapter 16. 15 is an interlude, a period where the, it does not advance the chronology of the tribulation period, but it reviews perhaps the tribulation from heaven's perspective as opposed to just the earth. And now we're going to jump into the bowl judgments. The reality is the bowl judgments are, con constitute the final wrath of God, and they really probably occur very, very near the end of the tribulation period. When you read these bowl judgments, you're persuaded there's no way the planet could survive for three and a half years if it took that long to occur. So I would differ a bit from Dr. Fruchtenbaum, with all due respect, and believe that the bowl judgments probably occur in rather rapid succession. So big picture, the Bible is a book of hope, grace and mercy, but it also is a book of judgment. God's holiness demands that he judge sin. But we humans, we tend to want to overlook the judgment part of that equation. We forget that you really don't understand something unless you understand its opposite. You cannot understand love unless you can comprehend hate. You cannot understand truth unless you can comprehend lies, correct? Reward is meaningless if there is no punishment. That's the nature of how it works. Because God is righteous, God is truthful, God is faithful, therefore God loves righteousness, God loves truth, God's faith, and by definition he also must hate unrighteousness, he must hate deceit, and he must hate belief. So when we look at Revelation 16, what you're going to see is God's hatred of evil on display. God's holy judgment of sin is utterly necessary because contrary to human opinion, sin is lethal. Sin will kill you. And if sin left unchecked would destroy the creation. So God in his holiness and his justice and his righteousness has to destroy sin. Now we should not only understand God's righteousness, we should take great comfort in the fact that God is going to judge sin and he's going to clean house. Now let me give you a little word picture. I will, this, I, I will not be popular with you when you're done with this, but how many have ever seen the television series The Hoarders? The Hoarders, seen that? How many of you have seen yourself in that series? Yeah? That's me. I'm close. I'm not there, but I'm close, right? You know, the, the, the point is, is you understand that cleaning house is short-term extremely painful because the folks in that series have grown very attached to their stuff, right? They love that stuff. As a matter of fact, they love that stuff so much they can't bear to part with it. But the stuff is killing them. It's choking them. It's cluttering the house to the point in time where bacteria, germs, and dead animals and all sorts of things are in the house with them because they can't get rid of the stuff. That's a pretty good word picture of sin. And we humans are hoarders of our sin. 
God is saying, I'm here because I love you and I'm gonna help you declutter. As a matter of fact, I might have to bulldoze the house, right? I wanna separate you from that which is killing you called sin and the way I'm going to do that is through judgment and through the cross, both. So it's short-term painful, long-term essential. Now, Revelation 16, this chapter occurs right before the return of Christ. So it's right near the end of the tribulation. During this seven-year period of tribulation, we've seen two extreme cases of behavior. One, you see seven years of judgment and suffering and enormous pain on planet Earth. And at the same time, <clears throat> there have been seven years of spiritual revival. Millions and millions and millions of people in Revelation come to faith during the tribulation. There's two angels preaching. There's 144,000 evangelists. The Holy Spirit's at work in the lives of people that do come to faith during that period of time. God even has an angel flying in mid-heaven proclaiming the gospel. Millions come to faith. So it's a great time of revival as well as a great time of judgment. Now near the end of this period of time, God is preparing for Jesus' return and he's going to use these seven plagues, the seven bold judgments in order to accomplish that. I want you to give you kind of a context. When you look at these seven bold judgments, they are described as plagues. When I use the word plagues in Scripture, what else do you think of? Egypt plague, right? There were two sets of plagues in Scripture that really remind us of this. One of the ten plagues of Egypt and the second set of plagues were the seven trumpet judgments just before this in chapters 8 through 11. But I want you to notice the scope of these plagues. The ten plagues in Egypt were local. They, if impacted, one nation and one nation only, the nation of Egypt. The trumpet judgments, <clears throat> if you recall, covered one-third of the planet. We'll see over and over again. One-third of the planet was impacted by the trumpet judgments. When you look at these bold judgments in chapter 16, they're global. It impacts the entire planet. No one and nothing is spared. Now, I want you to notice also the types of judgments that occur. The plagues in Egypt included water turned into blood, frogs, lice, flies, diseases among livestock, thunder and hail, locusts, darkness, and death of every firstborn. You'll notice that those judgments escalate, right? They get progressively more intense, progressively more severe. We talked about that a few weeks ago, that God in his mercy ratchets up the pain point to give us opportunity to repent before the pain gets to the point of unbearable. When you look at the seven trumpet judgments in chapter 8 through 11, they sound reasonably familiar with the Egyptian plagues. We have hail, fire, and blood. One-third of all the trees and the green grass is burned up. You have one-third of ocean waters turned to blood. One-third of sea life is killed. One-third of fresh water is poisoned. One-third of the light of the sun and the moon and the stars is darkened. Demons from the abyss overrun the earth, torment people for five months. And the last of the trumpet judgments, 200 million demons from the river Euphrates come and kill one-third of mankind. So the trumpet judgments, one-third of the planet's impacted. It's a partial judgment. It's severe, but it's going to get much worse in the bold judgments. They're far, far more intense. The entire earth is going to be experiencing this. also want you to notice the timeline of these judgments. As near as we can tell, the plagues of Egypt probably occurred over a period of months. When you read Exodus and you read these plagues, you understand they didn't take place in a weekend. This was a period of time, but they also didn't take place over a period of years. It was probably a period of several months. The trumpet judgments probably take place for three and a half to four years. So it's a period of time. When we read the intensity of the bold judgments, it's very, very clear that they didn't take very long because they occur in rapid fire succession, almost like a jackhammer. Now, Revelation 15, 7, if you go back two verses before chapter 16 to Revelation 15, 7, I want you to notice something that's extremely important. It's going to introduce our key idea. It says that these seven gold bowls are full of the wrath of God. Now, the word full here means to swell. I want to give you a word picture. Full of the wrath of God. The picture here is there's a dam that's holding back the water that's piled up against it. How many have ever seen Hoover Dam? Back in the day when we actually had rainfall in the southwest, right, United States, that dam, Lake Mead, would stretch for about 430 miles. It was a huge body of water putting pressure on the dam, and the dam is holding back that water. The dam is under great pressure. 
wanting to burst. God's wrath against sin has been building since Adam and Eve. God's wrath against sin is not static. He's always hated sin, but he's moving closer to judgment. So here's our key idea. Like Hoover Dam, God's mercy and grace have been holding back his judgment. <clears throat> but now, God pours out his holy wrath against sin and sinners. I want to give you that word picture. I want you to understand that the pressure of God's wrath against sin is growing. And in this chapter, he's going to let it go in his divine and perfect time. Chapter 16, verse 1. And I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of wrath of God into the earth. Now understand, at this point in history, these plagues are not designed for conviction or conversion. They're designed for vengeance. There will be people that repent, but you never read about them in this chapter. All you read about in this chapter is people refuse to repent, refuse to repent, refuse to repent. But we're at the point now where the wrath of God is going to clean house. This voice who's commanding these seven angels to go and pour their bowls out is the voice of Jesus Christ. What's basically being done here is God's wrath is no longer going to be restrained. God's wrath is no longer going to be mixed with mercy. God's wrath is no longer going to be metered out a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time in dosages. It's going to be dumped on humanity all at once. It's literally the dam breaking, judgment falling, in rapid succession, and it's going to lead to, to the return of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, And the first angel went and poured out his bowl into the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore upon the men who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Here's the principle. Sin on the inside shows up as sores on the outside. What's inside of you will be revealed by your attitudes and actions. Have you ever noticed, though, no matter what comes out of your mouth, always reveals what's in your heart, correct? Pastor Rogers said for years, when you get bumped, whatever spills out of you is what's inside of you. And we always get bumped when it's inconvenient, right? God has a way of revealing to us what's inside of us. Well, we're going to find that out here. Now, these bowls that are going to get dumped are very shallow saucers. They're not deep buckets. They're a very shallow saucer. And when you turned it over, what was inside came out all at once. All at once. It just got turned over, right? That's the kind of judgment we're talking about here. It's not metered out. It's instantly coming out. And these sores are loathsome and malignant. The Greek there is kekos. It means evil, injurious, painful. That which has, has a crippling effect. And it says these, these are sores. It's an open wound. It is an oozing, incurable skin ulcer that is foul and malignant and is incurable. And if you remember the plagues of Egypt in Exodus 9, the sixth plague was what? The plague of boils. Same thing. It is a skin eruption that's open and incurable and foul and it's not fixable and it covers the body. Makes you very attractive, right? Sores on the outside of your body are a sign that there's corruption on the inside. Something's wrong inside. That's why you see the external manifestation called the sore. God in his justice is revealing the sin of their soul through the sores on their body. Now, by the way, not all sin is the result, not all sickness is the result of personal sin, but God knows their hearts and he's deciding to display the condition of their heart on the outside of their body. One verse that absolutely terrifies me when I read it is Zechariah 14, 12. Zechariah 14, 12. This is a prophecy that God foretells this period of time. And here's what he says about the people during this period of time. Zechariah 14, 12. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouth. And it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them. That's pretty significant. That's pretty serious. It tells you how bad God hates sin. And it says this judgment is very specific. You'll notice it says it falls only on the men who have the mark. That's very specific. It affects this judgment only affects those who worship the beast and those who have taken his mark, and it affects every person who worships the beast and taken his mark, no exceptions. 
Those who worship Jesus and refuse the mark of the beast will be exempt from this plague, just like Israel was from the plagues of Egypt. And one of the things I just realized, it will be extremely obvious who is worshiping who. Because if you've got oozing sore boils all over your body, it's pretty clear you've taken the mark of the beast. It's pretty clear God's going to make it very visible who you're worshiping, and it's going to be obvious to everybody at that point in time. So they've taken the mark of the beast, now God's going to mark them with his mark. Tumors, visible and incurable, and guess what? The Antichrist and Lucifer will be unable to solve this. It'll be incurable. Their power will be seen as far less than the power of Jesus Christ. Understand that if you are a Christian at this point in time, and you came to faith during the tribulation, you are going to undergo massive amounts of persecution. Most Christians are likely going to be slaughtered because you'll be pain-free. You won't have the tumors. It'll be obvious that you belong to Jesus because you don't have the tumors. You don't have the skin, right? It's remarkable to think that the majority of Earth's population, the vast majority, will be suffering from the same malady for which there is no cure. These incurable physical sores is a picture of our incurable spiritual sin. There is no human cure for sin. Amen? Amen. No human cure. God is making visible physically that which is reality spiritually. Only Jesus can heal a sin-sick soul. We live in a world, it's the exact same thing. We live in a world for whom there is no cure for our spiritual sin except Jesus Christ. And believe me, they are going to try and solve this problem and medical science will be unable to solve it because it's a spiritual condition, a judgment of God, verse 3. And the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. I want you to notice something. In the trumpet judgments, you see them sequentially and there's, sometimes there's a command. God says, go pour, go pour, go pour. Here, it's just sequence. Boom, number one, number two, number three, number four. Number, I mean, it's rapid fire. The second angel pours out his bowl into the sea and it became blood like that of a dead man and every living thing in the sea died. The literally in the Greek it says, and it became blood as of a dead man. Interesting, Ephesians 2.1 says that we were what? Dead in our trespasses and sins. So God is making the physical ocean as dead as the spiritually dead men who live on the earth. Now, I've never talked to anybody who'd done this, but I've read a number of uh, of tales and, and dead men's blood is very coagulated, it's very thick, it's dark, it's lifeless, and nothing can live in it. That's a picture of the ocean. During the trumpet judgments, a, a meteor strike hits the ocean and somehow impacts a third of the ocean, but right now we have a complete ocean that is either literal blood or that has the equivalent composition of lifeless blood, right? It may refer to ocean water that looks like dead blood, but it's equally toxic to life, so nothing can live in it. This reminds you of the Egyptian plague of water into blood, the first plague, right? God has a pattern here working. Interestingly, in our world today, there's a relatively common phenomenon called a red tide. Have you ever heard of a red tide, red of a red tide? They're also known as HABS, H-A-B-S, harmful algae blooms. <coughs> Red tide, the technical term is harmful algae blooms. What you have is you have a lot of microscopic one-celled algae called dinoflagellates, and they can grow out of control under the right conditions. They literally can, billions and billions of them. What they do is they produce rather toxic effects on fish and humans because what they do is deplete the oxygen in the water. And they kill billions of fish, billions of fish. Uh, if you eat a contaminated shellfish uh, with the dinoflagellate, it can kill you, a neurotoxin. And when these red tides occur, when you do flyovers, it just looks like blood. I mean, the water just, it's a blood red. It's viscous, kind of like maple syrup. Not quite that thick, but it's very viscous, and it looks like blood. Interesting that 70% of the surface of planet Earth is covered with water. Now 70% of the Earth is covered with blood, right? And nothing lives in it. So the ocean is completely toxic. Every sea creature will die maybe due to lack of oxygen, and when they die, they do what? They float. And they stink. And beach property will plummet in price, right? 
they're going to be piled high with carcasses. If there's any tides left, they will be. The moon is still there, but I mean, you're going to have some pretty grotesque things. The stench is going to be unbearable. The most important thing is not the external stuff. The most important thing is the marine food chain is going to collapse. There will be no marine food. The, the m millions and millions of people that get protein from the ocean is going to disappear. So you're going to have food shortages. You're going to have starvation. You're going to have global trade, gone, right? Commerce to a crawl. God is dismantling his planet. He is removing everything that we trust in besides him. And you and I know that because the Lord in his mercy does that to us even today. Yes, when we make an idol out of something, we trust in something more than him. And God knows that that's bad for our souls. You know what he does? He takes it away because we have an idol. And then we whine about it. And then maybe later we say, thank you, Lord, for taking that thing away. I didn't need it. It was causing me to take my eyes off you. God is removing, literally, the planetary support so they will turn to him. Verse 4. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. So all the salt water is now toxic, <clears throat> and now the third angel is going to do the same thing to all the fresh water. Now remember... Fresh water's already been in very short supply because Revelation 11 told us that the two witnesses, remember his two supernatural witnesses, they shut up the sky. Literally no rain for three and a half years. So we've already had a prior three and a half year drought worldwide. Food's been tough and rain has been almost non-existent. And if you look at chapter 7 verse 1, it tells us that four of God's angels held back, literally stopped the wind movement on planet Earth. We're not sure how long that lasts, but if you don't have any wind movement occurring on planet Earth, what happens to the hydrologic cycle? It stops, right? The hydrologic cycle evaporates water from bodies of waters, largely the ocean, and the wind current takes that evaporated water in the form of rain clouds, moves it over land, so we get water on land so we can grow things, <laughs> That stops for at least a period of time. Now, we know that future judgments include hailstones, so it seems as though maybe those uh, angels held the winds back for a period of time, but there's been a problem with fresh water on the planet anyway. And this third bowl judgment says it impacts what? Every river, every lake, every spring, anything you can drink is impacted. Now, it doesn't say, it, it doesn't say cisterns or existing water supplies. I don't know if you had stored water, if that would be impacted or not. But the human body can survive about three days without water. Believe it or not, during this Christmas season, you can live for weeks without food. Although I know it's pretty tough, you know, I mean, you, but you would live. You would survive without food for a matter of weeks. Three days, about 72 hours without water, and uh, your body is physically done at that point in time. So we have all seawater toxic, all freshwater toxic, but apparently, as we're going to find out in verse 6, apparently people are choking it down anyway because they have to drink something. It's bitter and foul, but they're drinking anyway. And this is about the time in the message where I can hear people say, if God is so merciful and compassionate, how can he do this to people? How can he inflict this degree of pain on people? And I'm glad you asked the question because an angel is going to answer you in verse 5. Here's what the angel says. And I heard the angel of the waters. Interesting that God sounds like he delegates management of the water to angels. We know he delegated management of the wind to angels. So he might have delegation of his planetary management to as part of his angelic force. Verse 5. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, in answer to manna's question, Righteous art thou who art and who wast, O holy God, because thou didst judge these things. Here's the principle. God always judges according to his character. God always judges according to his character. Since he is holy and righteous, his judgments are wholly right. God never makes a mistake in judgment. He himself is the definition of righteousness and justice. Whatever God does, by definition, is right. Now, sometimes we have opinions about what God should do because he doesn't agree with us. If you and God have a disagreement, we can safely conclude that who is right? Yeah, assume that God is right and, and you will be right 100% of the time. Agreeing with God will make you right 100% of the time. 
Since God is the creator, he is eternal, he is entirely holy, the people of the earth have spurned God's repeated calls for mercy and righteousness. They are worshiping the beast, and God is letting them experience the consequences of that. This angel said, God is completely just in judging mankind, and as a matter of fact, God would be unjust if he did not destroy sin. If we had a God that tolerated our sin, what kind of a world would we have? Most of us would be long dead if God had not restrained sin from impacting our life and the sin in our life. God absolutely must deal with sin. The people on earth who have been following Satan have been murdering millions of those who follow Jesus Christ. Verse 6, the angel says, you are just in pouring out this judgment and because they, the earth dwellers, the people who've taken the mark of the beast, they have poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets and now has given them blood to drink. They deserve it. That sounds very much like lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? They deserve it. <clears throat> Here's the principle. The only thing that everyone deserves is judgment. When someone says, I want justice, you say, no, you don't want justice. Because if you want justice, hell is just. That's what you deserve. The only thing that everyone deserves is judgment because everyone has sinned. Anything apart from judgment is God's mercy. Remember, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Right? I've told every male I've ever met, marry a merciful woman because you will need it. Right? Amen. Amen. I'm with you. Those who follow the beast have been mercilessly killing those who are faithfully following Jesus. And these martyrs in chapter 4 are under the altar crying out for their blood to be avenged. Revelation 17, 6, we're going to get to, Lord willing, in a couple weeks, says that this entire system of the Antichrist is literally drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. The people of the planet are now intoxicated with the slaughter of millions of Christians and they deserve the judgment they receive. The word deserve here in the Greek is axios, A-X-I-O-S, and it means worthy, worthy. They were worthy of the judgments God gave them because they were sinners. We all are worthy of judgment. And of course, as we heard this morning, the only way to avoid God's just judgment for our sins is on the basis of God's grace through Jesus Christ. These earth dwellers have heard the gospel for seven years and they have rejected Jesus' payments for their sins. So they're choosing to pay for their sin themselves. See, at the end of the day, either Jesus pays for your sins, right? Or you pay for your sins yourself. These people have rejected Jesus' payment they're now going to pay for their own sins. Interesting that God is a very just God. Have you ever noticed that his punishment fits the crime? That God's punishment fits the crime? Warren Wiersbe notes that Pharaoh drowned Hebrew babies in the Nile River. And so God drowned Pharaoh in the Red Sea. Haman planned to hang Mordecai on the gallows and exterminate the Jewish people but Haman himself was hanged on his own gallows and his own family was exterminated. King Saul disobeyed God's command to slay the wicked Amalekites, so an Amalekite took the credit for killing him. God says here, very simple, you spill the blood of God's people, I'm going to turn the wa water of the earth into blood and make you drink it. You are literally bloodthirsty for the saints' blood. I'm going to make you drink blood. God is just. God is just because he's holy. See, we have a view of God that is largely, as a culture, inaccurate and inadequate. We really don't know what the planet was like prior to sin. But we have a picture of heaven coming up, Lord willing, in a few weeks or months. We'll get to chapter 21 and 22, and we'll get a picture of what it's like in a state of perfection. And we will look back at this sinful planet, and we will not believe how evil it is. 
when you look at the judgments of God, you're getting a picture of his holiness. The severity of God's judgment is strictly proportional to the severity of the sin problem. We have trouble with judgment because we don't understand his holiness and we fail to understand the nature of sin. So when you look at God's judgment, you go, whoa, this sin problem is extraordinary. Yes, it took the blood of Jesus the Son to cleanse us from all sin, so you know it's extraordinary. Okay? Verse 7. I heard the altar say, yes, O Lord God the Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. The altar, of course, is in, in heaven. There's a temple in heaven. It's the throne, near the throne of God, and it itself says, verifies again, that God sets the standards for what is right and true and just because he is eternally and completely true and righteous. Now, if you want an interesting human face on this, remember in, in Genesis 18, God sends some angels and he himself comes and has a little conversation with Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And what does Abraham say? Lord, if there's 50 righteous in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, you won't destroy the righteous with the wicked, will you? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And what does God say? I won't destroy it. If I, you can find 50 righteous, I'll spare the city. That's mercy, right? Abraham says, what about there's 45? I'll spare it. What about 40? I'll spare it. What about 35? He gets all the way down to 10. God says, if there are 10 righteous in that city, I and mercy will spare the wicked with the righteous. I will give them mercy. They couldn't find 10. And God pulled the righteous ones out. Lot, his wife, and two daughters. And they wouldn't want you would be called that righteous either, right? You know, okay? So God in mercy says, I will never slay the, the righteous with the wicked. I will not treat the righteous and the wicked alike in judgment. I will give mercy, but I will judge everyone according to their own deeds because I will not compromise holiness. Verse 8. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was given to scorch men with fire. Now, you know and I know that a life on earth depends on the sun. The sun is 92,960,000 miles from the earth. It's the exact distance required for earth to survive, for life to survive. If the, if the earth was not very many miles closer to the sun, it would burn. If we were not many miles further away from the sun, we'd be in a perpetual ice age. So... There's an interesting series, <clears throat> I think it's called The Privileged Planet. And it looks at all the things in place on planet Earth for life to exist. And the, the odds of that occurring by chance are literally infinite. It is impossible. The Earth and all that's in it required a designer and an infinite God who designed it. But this particular time, we're going to see a change. Now, the surface of the sun is about 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the surface, about 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The core of the sun is 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. Now that's a pretty big barbecue. In this fourth judgment, trumpet judgment, in chapter 11, chapter 8, 12, the fourth trumpet judgment, the sun had been dimmed, right? Kind of turned the rheostat down. God shut off some sunlight, moonlight, starlight to the planet. And now in this fourth bowl judgment, instead of being dim, God's going to turn the heat up. He's going to amp up the heat at that point in time. Now, I don't know exactly how this is going to occur, but I have some thoughts. Maybe God just removes the ozone layer from the planet. You wouldn't even have to make the sun any hotter. You just take the ozone layer to protect you, and you've got ultraviolet light that is extraordinary toxic to human beings. Cancers galore. Maybe there's more solar flares at the same time this occurs. Solar flare obviously is very, very intense. A lot of electromagnetic waves hit the earth at that point in time. Maybe God arranges a planetary flyby and moves the earth's orbit closer to the sun. See, people say, well, that'll never happen. Well, you know, don't ever say God will never do. God will do anything consistent with his character. The only thing that limits God is his character and his word. He will always operate consistent with his word. The physical universe is his creation. He can do whatever he wants, but whatever the means 
solar radiation is going up dramatically. Interestingly, that this has been foretold. This has been prophesied. <clears throat> I never saw this before, but if you take a quick look, just write it down. Malachi 4. <clears throat> Malachi 4.1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that they will neither leave them root nor branch. Another one, Isaiah 24, verse 5. Isaiah 24, 5. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they have transgressed laws, violated statutes, and broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, verse 6, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. So, I want you to think about this. <clears throat> You've got incurable, open, oozing, painful skin ulcers, and now the temperature goes up dramatically. How many of you have ever been on the equator? Ever been to Hawaii? Anybody? You ever notice that the sun overhead at the equator is like it just drills into your skin? You ever notice that? Well, that's this on steroids. Interesting that this scorching heat is a sign of God's mercy. Do you know why it's a sign of God's mercy? God is giving these earth dwellers a preview of the lake of fire. He's giving them a preview of the heat and the pain that will be theirs if they don't repent. Now, if you have an increase in earth's temperature, you're going to have global warming, real global warming. You're going to evaporate seawater. You're going to melt polar ice caps on Greenland and Antarctica. You know, as a matter of fact, if you melted all the ice in Greenland and Antarctica, the reliable estimates I've seen that all that ice would raise sea levels between 175 and 200 feet. Now, if you had sea levels an increase of even 100 to 200 feet, you're going to take out New York, Tokyo, London, Los Angeles, Rio de Janeiro, Buenos Aires, Amsterdam, Leningrad, Rome, Athens, Beirut, Calcutta, Shanghai, Singapore, Hong Kong, and the list goes on and on because the majority of the world's metropolitan areas are on the coast. But Bakersfield will be beachfront. Bakersfield will be beachfront. <laughs> yeah, it'll be blood. Bakersfield's about, yeah, it'll be blood, but it'll be about four. We're, we're about four. Yeah, yeah, great. Small comfort, right? The Central Valley is about 400 foot elevation. But if you had a 200 foot increase, let me tell you, you'd throw water through the delta like you couldn't believe and it'd come up to that level at that point in time. So the loss of life because of the flooding that would occur would be incalculable. Now the other thing we don't realize is you got more water vapor that's gonna be in the atmosphere, a lot more. So you're gonna have a greenhouse effect that's gonna be real interesting. Every day is gonna be 100% humidity and probably over 100 degree temperature. You're gonna have a steam sauna, <clears throat> you're gonna have sunburn, you're gonna have skin cancer. And these wounds are gonna be open. It's gonna be a painful period of time. You're probably also gonna see a lot more violent storm activity because of the geology of this. So if you think the climate is changing now, just wait, it's really gonna change. How do humans respond to this? Verse 9. It says, men were scorched with, with, with fierce heat. This is not just a sunburn. This is a burn burn. It says scorched. How did they respond? They blasphemed or cursed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues. And you can underline this. They did not repent so as to give him glory. Here's the principle. <clears throat> Repentance glorifies God. Rebellion glorifies me. Repentance believes God's word. Rebellion believes Satan's lies. We know God's heartbeat, 2 Peter 3, 9 says, God is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God wants everybody to have a relationship with him. That's why he sent Jesus for the sins of the world. He's given everybody the ability to repent, but everyone has free will, which means everyone has the choice to either repent or rebel. Interesting, the book of Exodus records, of course, Israel's slavery in Egypt. 
God commanded Pharaoh 10 times to do what? Let my people go that they may serve me. And he told them, if you don't let them go, here's what I'm going to do. A plague, one, two, three, four, five. Several of the plagues God told Pharaoh in advance, here's what I'm going to do. Just to preview, I'm telling you what I'm going to do if you don't let them go. It says 10 times from Exodus 7 to 10 that Pharaoh did what? Hardened his heart. That's refusal to repent. That's rebellion. That's standing up and saying, I'm not going to bend the knee. I'm not going to bow before God. I'm not going to give him glory. I'm going to resist him. That's a hard heart. It took 10 plagues for Pharaoh to let Israel go. And even then he changed his mind. And he pursued them in order to enslave them again and drowned in the Red Sea in the process. You know, he had to be king. He wasn't going to bend the knee. And so he was a dead king. Not a good set of choices, right? If you want a very sobering set of passages, I, I was going to bring this into the lesson, but we didn't have time. Look at Hebrews 3 and 4. There's very, very serious admonition from God to us as believers. Do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. You harden your heart when you believe the deceit of Satan. You harden your heart when you fail to fellowship together. You harden your heart when you neglect God's word. And you harden your heart when God calls and you refuse to listen. And you all know people who've done that. You know people that the Lord is talking to. He's talking to, and he's talking to, and they're hardening their heart, and they're hardening their heart, and they're hardening their heart. Proverbs says that there comes a day when those who continue hard in their heart are broken suddenly. Almost, you want to say, without remedy. I would say without human remedy. There's always a divine remedy, and that's Jesus Christ. And if there's one thing to pray for people in your life who don't know Jesus, it's a tender heart. It's a soft heart. It's a heart that hears God and takes God seriously. See, I know we all listen to this class. There's people listening to us, I guess, around the world, according to Marty. And they're going to hear this and they'll go, yes, I understand that. But does it impact your will? Or is it just, yeah, I understand, I should not harden my heart. But practically, am I listening to God's word and does it impact my choices? You can say, God, I understand it, but I'm still living like I'm in charge. Doesn't help. As a matter of fact, you're now more judged because you knew and you still chose to sin. These people knew they'd had the gospel over and over. For crying out loud, they had a heaven, an angel in mid-heaven preaching the word of God to them. If you had an angel in mid-heaven flying over your house and preaching God's word to you, do you think you might listen? Well, apparently most of them didn't. So when you say these people are really foolish, look in the mirror. We've all done this. It's wicked and it's evil and we need to repent every day. These people didn't repent and it's a call for us to make sure we have a tender heart toward the Lord. When he speaks to us, do what he says for heaven's sakes. And for your sake too, but above all for the glory of God's sake. You know, you cannot win when you fight against God. You know why? He will outlive you. Yeah. He will outlive you, right? You would think that pain would change these people's behavior. Is the pain quotient going up? Yes, dramatically going up. It does change their behavior. It gets worse. It makes it worse. Instead of repenting, they're rebelling. Instead of crying in humility, they're cursing in pride. And it says they don't curse the name of Satan, they curse the name of God. You know what's significant about that? There's no more atheists on planet Earth. They now acknowledge that God really does exist. They also understand that their suffering is designed by an infinite personal God. There is no random evolutionary chance that's producing these plagues on them. It's an infinite personal God who's furious over their sin. What they're refusing to do is give God glory, to honor God, to bend the knee, to worship him. These people have sworn allegiance to the Antichrist and they are worshiping Satan. Two or three weeks ago, we talked about the fact that you always take on the character of the God you worship. If you worship the God of money, you will become greedy. It's the nature of worship. We become like what we worship. These people are cursing and blaming God because Satan is cursing and blaming God, and they're becoming like the God they worship. 
They know that God's willing to forgive them. They've heard the gospel, but they love their sin and they refuse to be reconciled. They choose to be separated from God and they choose to be separated from his rule and God's going to give them their wish. Hell will be populated with people who choose hell. Everybody who is in hell chooses hell. There is a solution for hell. It's called the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. If we bend the knee and acknowledge we're sinners and accept Christ's payment for our sins, we don't have to pay it ourselves. Hell is populated with the people that go, I'm going to pay it myself. I don't need God. I refuse to bend the knee. I'm, I did it my way. And they're going to be cursing God in hell for all eternity. And you say, that doesn't make any sense. Of course it doesn't. Sin is stupid. Really, sin is very, very, very stupid. When you look at it, you say, it makes no sense at all. Of course not. They're deceived. They bought the lie. They bought Satan's lie. And we are susceptible to that, but we have the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to keep us on the straight and narrow. So stay in the Word and stay in prayer and obey what you know. When you, God speaks to you, obey it. Verse 10. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. Now, you know, it's interesting. Up until this period of time, the beast, the Antichrist, has been kind of protected from this. He's, his headquarters are in Babylon, which is above sea level, so he's, not, he's protected from rising ocean currents. Believe me, this beast has got the best medical care. He's got the best food supply. He's got fresh water, unlike everybody else. He's got electricity. He's got his army surrounding him. Now... God is going to lay his hand on him. It says the throne of the beast. That's his headquarters, the center of his authority, his capital city. And his kingdom became what? Darkened. Literal darkness, not a figure of speech. And the word became indicates suddenly. It's like God said, turn the lights out, click. Now, the beast at this point in time rules over the earth by the end of the tribulation, so it seems as though this darkness is going to be global. Literally a global blackout. I don't know how God's going to impact the way sun impacts the earth, but it also seems to indicate that the power grid's not going to be functioning because there's no light. There's no artificial light. There's no electricity. Of course, understand by this time, most of the infrastructure that humanity's built, it's been long gone. I mean, it's underwater. It's been trashed with earthquakes, etc., etc., now, the ninth plague in Egypt during Exodus chapter 10 was darkness. It says that the darkness of Egypt was so intense, you could feel it. Now, I don't know what darkness that's so intense you could feel it would be, but I want you to think psychologically with me. God is demonstrating his power over all things, including the Antichrist, because Antichrist can't turn the lights on. Lucifer can't turn the lights on. They're creatures and God's the creator. Now this lights out is also an indication of God's mercy. Matthew 22, Jesus says, what's going to happen in Gehenna in hell? It's this, it's outer darkness. Hell is dark. The lake of fire is dark. There's no light there. So God in his mercy is giving these rebellers a taste of what's to come if they fail to repent. Physical darkness also illustrates that the Antichrist's empire is spiritually dark. Satan's kingdom is one of darkness, right? See, God, once again, his justice is fitting the crime. Mankind has chosen spiritual darkness. They've rejected Jesus, who is the light of the world, so God gives them more darkness. You want darkness? I'll give you darkness. Zero light. No one can see anything. No one can do anything except it says they gnaw their tongues because of pain. This probably would indicate that these plagues are cumulative, not sequential. Actually, they're both. Think about it. At this point in time, they've got painful and incurable open sores. The ocean's destroyed. There's no fresh water to drink that's not bitter and toxic, which means they're hungry. They're very, very thirsty. They've got burning sun, melting ice caps, flooding. Demons are running wild everywhere. And now they're shut up in their rooms, isolated. Is that a little picture of hell? Isolated, dark, intense pain, 
alone? Yeah, it's a little picture of hell. God in his mercy is showing them that. And they're in such pain, they're gnawing their trunks, trying to distract themselves from their agony. You know, if you get enough pain in one part of your body, one of the ways to cure it is put pain in another part of your body. You ever done that before? None of you have ever done that before? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I am not gonna re I am not gonna repeat that for the tape. No. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. We'll back that off, yeah. Verse eleven. And they did what? They blasphemed the God of heaven. This is the second time they're cursing God. Because of their pain and their source, it's the second time pain is mentioned, and it's the second time lack of repentance is mentioned. They did not repent of their deeds. See, here's the principle. I didn't even tell Rob about this one, but more pain does not produce repentance in a rebellious heart. More pain does not produce repentance in a rebellious heart. It merely reveals their true condition of the heart. See, if more pain produced repentance, then people who suffered the most would be the most holy. Actually, what God is doing is giving them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent, and they have resisted, and they now blame God for the consequences of their sinful choices. It's a form of insanity. They are deceived. They bought the lie and they're willfully deceived. They've chosen this. So big picture, God in his infinite wisdom, his infinite mercy is now going to let the earth experience his infinite justice because he must rid the earth of the toxicity and the lethality of sin before Jesus Christ comes back. And this is where I guess it's a call to us there will come a day when God will restrain his wrath no longer. That day is coming. And when it does come, sin will be dealt with, sinners will be dealt with, and Satan will be dealt with. So over and over again in Scripture you hear, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. <laughs> Act on the truth that you know now. Let's review. Here's the key idea. Like Hoover Dam... God's mercy and grace have been holding back his judgment, but now God pours out his holy wrath against sin and sinners. Number two, sin on the inside shows up as sores on the outside. What is inside of you will be revealed by your attitudes and actions. Number three, God always judges according to his character. Since he is holy and righteous, his judgments are wholly right. Number four, the only thing that everyone deserves is judgment because everyone has sinned. Anything else is God's mercy. And lastly, repentance glorifies God. Rebellion glorifies me. Repentance believes God's word. Rebellion believes Satan's lies. So we've just gone through the first five. We have two more. Lord willing, we'll get to them next week. We're moving into the Battle of Armageddon coming up. And then we're going to look at spiritual Babylon in verse 17, economic and political Babylon in verse chapter 18. And then we're going to get into the battle of Armageddon and uh, Lord willing, then the return of Christ. Okay. I do love you. And because you now know, go do. <laughs>